Psalm 134 is just three simple short verses. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. O gracious Lord and our almighty Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the gift of being able to worship in your house on this Lord's day. We thank you for the gift of your scripture, even for short passages such as Psalm 134, which are able to nourish us and sustain us in a way that nothing else in this world can even do. And as we begin to hear on the last of these Psalms of Ascent, Lord, we pray for Israel. We pray that a supernatural peace would fall on the region and that the violence and the bloodshed would cease. We pray for those who have lost loved ones or who cannot locate their loved ones or whose loved ones are held in captivity and that you would have mercy on those who suffer in these dark days. We thank you for the relative peace and stability that we are able to enjoy in our lives. And though our nation and our world is not without its dangers or problems, we thank you and praise you for the gift of peace and that we do not have to live in fear of attacks and dangers on a, on a daily basis. May we not be found unfruitful in bearing good works for the kingdom of God and gratitude for the gift of Christ and the gift of faith. We ask all these things through our mediator and high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen. When I was in college, one of my favorite bands at the time was a small rock band out of Tyler, Texas that went by the name of Isley. Isley had a small kind of cult following for having some really fun and creative and imaginative songwriting set to really gorgeous melodies and harmonies thanks to three sisters who all took turns as the lead vocalist for the band. And at the height of their, their really imaginative era of their songwriting, it came on their second album combinations. Uh, I don't know if, how clear the image is in the center, but the centered art drawing sums up the lyrics of the album pretty well, with the exception of the title track, the song combinations. They took a break from their imaginative, really creative songwriting to write something a little bit more personal and intimate. Probably won't take you long to figure out what that song was about if I were to read you the first verse and chorus. I saw you there, wanted you there. I knew that it was best for me. You've brought me back to that place and my heart I thought was gone. For so long I was unhappy. Now it's gone and I'm moving on. Moving on, moving on, I'm moving on. I went for so long, and I was so wrong, and then I met you. And now I can't live without you, and I don't want to. I've done that all my life up till now. I first discovered Isley and their music back in 2011, near the end of my very first year at Amarillo College. And at that time, I was, as my students sometimes say, uh, extremely single. And I would stay extremely single for a very long time. 
uh, I loved this band and I loved this song, but whenever I would uh, sing the song or hear the song, it would evoke a painful longing in my heart that at times and in seasons I thought would never go realized. So you can imagine on the day that I stood at the altar of my church and I heard the opening notes to this very familiar song, I look down the aisle and I see the doors at the end of the sanctuary open and I see the woman who is about to become my wife in her beautiful wedding dress, that these very familiar lyrics took on a very new and very deep meaning for me. No longer would I sing this song or think of this song in a, in a, in a wistful way, one day thinking this might be true for me. Now, I can't live without my wife, Melissa, and I don't want to. I've done that all my life up till now. Time and experience took these very familiar lyrics and gave them a new depth of meaning and significance, and you never see it the same way again. With Psalm 134, we come to the end of the Psalms of Ascent. And by now, you have heard numerous psalms that feature several different recurring themes, such as the Lord blessing his people from Zion, going to the house of the Lord, blessing the Lord with his servants, and, and so much more. And at the, as the last psalm of this sequence, Psalm 134 doesn't really introduce any new ideas that you haven't already heard up to this point. But I want to show you that even though this psalm is very simple, there's actually a depth to this psalm that with time and experience, it would change the way how you see this psalm. So what I want to do today is not just exegete Psalm 134 out in a vacuum, in a, in a contextualist vacuum, but I want to show how this psalm would land differently depending upon who you are, where you are, and when you are alive, when you are hearing this psalm, and show that even though there is a context for the psalm, there isn't a set context for this psalm, the depth of meaning has not been exhausted, and this psalm is not irrelevant for the people of God today. Specifically, I want to show this psalm in three particular experiential contexts, so three particular experiences. So those three are going to be Psalm 134 and the post-exilic Jew, Psalm 134 on the lips of Christ, and then Psalm 134 on our ascent to glory. So let's start with point number one, Psalm 134 and the post-exilic Jew. One of the challenges that comes with the Psalms of Ascent is that the writers of these Psalms assume that you are familiar with everything that is going on behind the scenes with these Psalms. They're, they assume that you're aware of the context and the history that gave rise to these Psalms, and so they don't rehash that information for you. The purpose of these Psalms is present in the name, Psalms of Ascent. That's the, the purpose for these psalms, but they don't explain why did this purpose come about in the first place. So when we're talking about an Old Testament historical context for these psalms, I want to stop and say that I know that talking about the Old Testament and talking about the Old Testament historical context can sometimes be a little scary. Uh, the Old Testament is big and it's complicated, uh, it's intimidating, and it's sometimes pretty disturbing. So Wherever you're at on how much you know about the Old Testament, the good news here is that what we need to talk about today is not going to take too much time. 
what I want to do is just kind of give you the top level part of the story that if you are what's called a post-exilic Jew, this would have been the top of your mind. This would have been the very first thing you're thinking about when you're singing this psalm. And that it takes place in something called, uh, for, for post-exilic Jews, that comes at the climax of the Old Testament story. The climax of the entire Old Testament, if you had to pick one particular story, there's a very clear answer, and that's the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile is a series of events that culminated with King Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon destroying Jerusalem and the temple in the year 586 and taking the people of God into captivity as exiles in a foreign land. Now, we normally think of like the Exodus as being some of the darkest, uh, darkest scenes of the Old Testament, but the Exodus can't really hold a candle to the Babylonian exile. It is the darkest scene of the Old Testament story. And though our English Bibles don't necessarily reflect this super well, if you were to pick up a Jewish Old Testament today, we have the same books as a Jewish Old Testament, just arranged in a different order. The way that a Jewish Old Testament arranges the books puts all of the event, all the, the, the stories and the events of the Babylonian exile in the literal center of the Old Testament. Everything builds up to it and then everything flows out of it. You can't miss it. The northern kingdom of Israel had already been destroyed by the Assyrian Empire at this point decades prior, but with the destruction of Jerusalem and the destruction of the temple, the destruction of the children of Abraham was now thorough and total and complete. See, the temple wasn't just the meeting place for all of the religious activities of, of Judaism. The temple in the mind of a Old Testament Jew, was the Lord's footstool. It was a geographic touch point for the presence of God on earth. If you wanted to go where God was present, you would have to go to the temple because that is where he was to be found. So in the mind of a 6th century BC Jew, living in the immediate aftermath of the destruction of Jerusalem, Nebuchadnezzar had just done to Yahweh what Yahweh did to Exodus or to Egypt in the Exodus. In the battle of the gods, Marduk of Babylon appears to have triumphed over Yahweh of Judah. But though the Lord warned his people through his prophets that he sent that destruction to Jerusalem and the temple were coming because of the sinful disobedience of his people, the Lord also promised that his people were not going to be scattered to the nations forever. Eventually, through the providence of pagan kings, such as Cyrus of Persia and King Artaxerxes of Persia, the tribe of Judah would not just return to the land, but would return with leaders such as Ezra and Nehemiah with funds from the Persian government to rebuild Jerusalem and the temple. And I say all this to illustrate, while the words and the phrases that we read in Psalm 134, they may seem really familiar to us, they may seem kind of common phrases that we, we've kind of heard uh, frequently or all the time, and they may not have a distinct meaning, for the post-exilic Jew, the fact that they would be able to sing these words with their countrymen on their way to worship the Lord in a newly built temple in the rebuilt Jerusalem, after decades of being in exile and judgment by the Lord, that's nothing short of a miracle. Listen to this again. 
Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. It goes without saying, but back in the day, in ancient times, when a temple was destroyed, the odds of it getting rebuilt weren't great. They didn't have insurance policies on those back in the day. If it got destroyed, your insurance company wasn't going to help you out very much there. When your city and your country got taken over by an army and a nation ten times stronger than you, the odds of getting that city back with assistance from the foreign government that w- was partial to what led to that destruction in the first place, the odds of that happening also weren't pretty great. The fact that they were able to say, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord, and there's actual now a holy place again to lift up your hands and bless the Lord to, that's nothing short of a tremendous and amazing miracle. They're able to believe these promises of God because these promises are now right before their very eyes. The Lord promised destruction and destruction did come, but the Lord promised not to scatter the people forever. And now with the Psalms of Ascent, they sing these songs on, the way, on their way to the temple that is by all accounts should not be there. And they are thanking and praising God for the fact that he has made good on his promises. So let's assume for a second that You're on your way up to Jerusalem. You're on your way up to the temple to worship. And you're singing Psalm 134 as the fullness of the temple that shouldn't be there, that is only there by the grace and mercy and miraculous power of God, now comes into view. If you're a post-exilic Jew, you are incredibly humbled and thankful for the promises of God being fulfilled right before your eyes. But you know that there's also more promises yet to come. This now leads us to our second point, Psalm 134 on the lips of Christ. Both Matthew and Mark record that after the Lord's Supper, Jesus and his disciples leave the house to go to the Mount of Olives. And as they go on their way, uh, both the Gospels refer to them singing a hymn. Now, we don't know if that hymn specifically is a, a phrase or a catchphrase for the Psalms of Ascent or not, but even if that particular reference isn't referring to the Psalms of Ascent, Jesus would have been very familiar with the Psalms of Ascent, including Psalm 134. And on the lips of Jesus, this Psalm takes on a very new and very deep meaning. See, in the centuries in between Ezra and Nehemiah's work in rebuilding Jerusalem and the temple and the birth of Christ, in those centuries in between that that gap, the temple undergoes some renovations by a guy named Herod. Now, that's a whole rabbit hole for another time, but for our purposes here, this is a, a, a reconstruction of what that temple might have looked like from a very famous Jewish rabbi. This is not the temple that the post-exilic Jew would have been familiar with. Herod's renovations included several major aesthetic improvements. And in Matthew and Mark and Luke, Jesus talks about the stones of the temple, these beautiful, glorious stones that the disciples are in awe of and commenting. Look at how beautiful these stones are. And Jesus says, those stones, these very stones, the ones that y'all think are really pretty, are going to be thrown to the ground when the temple is destroyed in your, in your lifetime. But as the sinless 
Jewish Messiah, Jesus, who would, lived in perfect obedience to the law, would have participated in the sacrifices, the festivals connected with this new and improved temple. But Jesus didn't participate in these things as an ordinary Jewish worshiper. He participated in them as the true temple. In the aftermath of John's account of Jesus cleansing the temple, the Jews ask Jesus for a sign that can account for his actions. Jesus' response in John 2.19 is very simple. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Now, with the benefit of hindsight, we can clearly see that Jesus was not talking about the physical temple, the one that the post-exilic Jews might have been familiar with or the one that he was standing in right now. And if you and I happen to be in that temple at the moment when Jesus said this line, we probably would have been a little confused too. And so we would have joined in in asking the, the question that the Jews respond back with and now seems kind of silly to us. It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? Jesus, Jesus in, in John, John tells that Jesus was speaking about the temple of his body, as John 2.21 makes clear. See, now, Jesus, as the true temple, is standing in the holy place. He's standing in the holy place referred to by Psalm 134. But now the true holy place has come. Now the holy place from Psalm 134 has become flesh and dwelt among his people. The long promised blessing of Zion has come and the maker of heaven is ignored. He is despised. He is rejected. And he is ultimately executed by some of the very servants of the Lord that stand by night in his house. Can you imagine, if you try to put yourself in Jesus' shoes as best you can, can you imagine how he must have felt singing Psalm 134 with his disciples? Can you imagine the grief that must have been in his heart when they all sing, come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, knowing that he is the Lord? And that his disciples, his servants, kind of get it, but not really? Can you imagine the pain that must have been in his heart when, they, when he sings, lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord, knowing that one day his people are going to lift up their hands to the Lord, but not to bless him, but to crucify him. Can you fathom the depth of the Father's love and the mission of Christ and the work of the Spirit when Jesus himself sings, may the Lord bless you from Zion, knowing that from eternity past, the triune God would answer that prayer by he who made heaven and earth becoming a sinless, sacrificial lamb of atonement for the sins of the whole world one who was put to death outside and away from the very temple that his people claimed to love so much. 
But can you also imagine the joy that the resurrected Christ must have had in his heart when he sees the spirit-illuminated light bulbs go on in the minds of his disciples when they finally get it? Can you imagine being Peter or James or John or any of the other disciples as everything you thought you knew about your faith and all of the places connected to your faith get turned on their head in light of the crucified and risen Messiah. The one who made heaven and earth has blessed his people from Zion, not by installing another king to reinaugurate the glory days of the kingdom of Israel, but by the king of kings himself coming down from heaven to show that the place and the, the, the practices that his people knew so well always pointed to him and the work he was going to do all along. The holy place is no longer confined to a single temple that is going to be destroyed because the Holy Spirit now dwells inside believers as Christ ascends into heaven and sends the Spirit to his people. Now the holy place is expanding outward from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And servants of the Lord no longer encompass just those who were Jews, but now Gentiles, now the nations as well. And this leads us to our third and final point, Psalm 134 on our ascent to glory. So here we are sitting in Dalhart, Texas, in the nation known as the United States of America on a small continent known as North America. So we're 2,000 years removed, give or take a couple of years, 2,000 years removed from the likely timing of the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ and several decades away from 2,000 years of the temple being destroyed in the year 8070. See, the sacrifices have ceased. The offerings have come to an end. There is no longer a holy place for us to lift our hands to and bless even if we wanted to, much less be one of the servants of the Lord who stand by night in his house. But there is more to this passage and more to the Psalms of Ascent than just their function in connection to the temple. All of the Psalms, including the Psalms of Ascent, relate to the person and work of Christ in some way, shape, and form. Though Christians have historically recognized and acknowledged that the Psalms were written in the Old Testament period and referred to concepts or languages or practices that we no longer do today, that these Psalms are immense treasures for our New Testament lives today. So what about Psalm 134? What are the treasures of this psalm that speak to us here in the Texas Panhandle today? Well, we actually already hinted at that answer to that question in the previous point. The holy place is no longer confined to a set point in space in the Middle East. The holy place is now expanding outward from Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And the servants of the Lord who stand by night in his house are no longer just ethnic Jews. They are also Gentiles. They are also the nations. And unless you're of Jewish descent, that includes you. 
See, I think the fact that we live in the Bible Belt, where there are churches on every corner and cultural Christianity has been the air that we have breathed for most of our lives, as good and wonderful as that is, it can kind of make us numb to just how miraculous Liberty Dalhart is. How miraculous my home church, Redeemer Christian Church is. How miraculous my dad's church in Claude is. How miraculous any church in the Texas Panhandle is. Because when this psalm was written, all of this and all of us here today would have been unthinkable. The idea that there would be servants of the Lord who are able to lift their hands and bless the Lord and receive the Lord's blessings from Zion who are, one, not Jewish, and two, not worshiping in the temple, is a thought that would have never crossed the mind of the post-exilic Jewish worshiper on the way to worshiping the Lord in the temple. But in light of the life, the death, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ, Psalm 134 becomes a psalm that we can recite and sing and pray in light of what Jesus Christ has accomplished for us and in light of everything Jesus is going to do because of what he's accomplished. We can recite, we can sing, we can pray all of the Psalms, including Psalm 134, because we are recipients of the Lord's promises being fulfilled in our very lives. We can recite and sing and pray Psalm 134 because the Lord has already answered this prayer. But he hasn't fully finished answering it yet. Because as the gospel advances into the world, more servants of the Lord lift up their hands to the Holy One to bless the Lord who has blessed them from Zion with the gospel of Jesus Christ. All who believe by faith that Jesus Christ has lived a life of sinless and perfect obedience to the law of God, died on the cross to atone for your sins and transgressions of that law that Jesus perfectly kept, and was raised from the grave to secure for us a new righteousness that becomes credited to our account, becomes our righteousness, and it washes away all of our sins, can recite and sing and pray Psalm 134, knowing that because Jesus Christ has now ascended to the right hand of the Father, that there are more blessings from Zion still to come. Because of everything Jesus Christ has accomplished, we can look forward to the one who made heaven and earth, making a new heavens and a new earth, where the dwelling place of God will no longer be confined to heaven or the temple, but with man, and he shall wipe away every tear from our eye forever. For eternity, the servants of the Lord gathered from every tribe, nation, and tongue will lift up their hands, not in Jerusalem, but in New Jerusalem. And as we move closer and closer to the day when the Lord returns to make all things new, we can recite, sing, and pray Psalm 134, knowing that the Lord has blessed us from Zion. But he's not done yet. His kingdom marches on. His gospel goes forth. And just as the post-exilic Jew sang this psalm with both gratitude for the temple that they could see with their eyes that shouldn't be there, hopeful of the promises that God has yet to make good on in the future, we can recite and sing and pray Psalm 134 with both gratitude for what Christ has accomplished 
for us and in anticipation of everything that Christ is going to do because of his accomplishments. So Liberty Baptist Dalhart, as we close our time here this morning, I want to end our time here by maybe doing something a little unusual. We read Psalm 134 corporately at the beginning of this sermon, and as I close this sermon, I want us to do what we ought to have been saying. I want us to cite, read aloud together, Psalm 134. And as I do, I hope that the meaning of this psalm comes alive and stirs your heart to continue worshiping the Lord as this day moves onward. So let's read Psalm 134 aloud together. Come, bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord, who stand by night in the house of the Lord. Lift up your hands to the holy place and bless the Lord. May the Lord bless you from Zion, he who made heaven and earth. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, the one who made heaven and earth, we thank you and praise you that Jesus Christ, the blessing from Zion, has come and has made us his servants who bless and serve him because he has reconciled us to himself by the blood of his cross. Lord, may your spirit fill our hearts to lift our hands to worship you and bless you, to confess our sins and renew our faith in the Holy One, Jesus Christ, who by his life, death, and resurrection has already saved us, but has not yet fully revealed the majestic glory of the salvation to be revealed at the end of days. We ask this all in the name of Christ. Amen. Would you stand? Let's stand together and sing our response to the Lord. Mm-hmm.